Welcome to Just Us and the Climate, a podcast by the Climate Justice Coalition, where we bring climate change back down to earth and show how it's not only a crisis, but an opportunity to build a better, more just world. Good day, it's Alex Lenferner here, Secretary for the Climate Justice Coalition, and we have a very special episode of our podcast, Just Us and the Climate, today. The Climate Justice Coalition were thinking we really needed to do a podcast focusing on the struggles against oil and gas exploration up and down the eastern and western coasts of South Africa. And it just so happened that the Institute for Poverty, Land and Agrarian Studies, PLAS, at the University of Western Cape, did this most fantastic discussion featuring communities on the front lines of struggles against oil and gas exploration. And so he thought, rather than trying to reinvent the wheel and do what they had done so perfectly, that we would just collaborate with them and bring you that discussion. So thanks to PLAS, thanks to WC, thanks to Living Landscapes in Action and Oak Foundation who helped bring that discussion together, we're able to bring it to you on the Just Us and the Climate podcast. So without further ado, I'm going to turn over to that discussion. Thank you. On the topic, we cannot eat oil and gas. Seismic service on the east and west coast of South Africa. This webinar is located within the Living Landscapes in Action Research Project funded by the Oak Foundation to promote nature conservation that benefits local communities. In this case, ocean conservation for the benefit of coastal communities. The legal battle in the courts between coastal communities and big corporations is ongoing, if not far from being over. On the East Coast, an interim interdict was granted by the Grahamstown High Court in Makanda on 28 December. 2021. On the West Coast, an interdict was granted by the High Court in Cape Town on the 1st of March. We will reflect on these judgments in this webinar. By the way, the year 2022 is the year of the artisanal fisher. It is an honor and pleasure to introduce the following speakers. All of them were part of the current litigation processes in the High Courts to challenge seismic service. Our speakers include Nonle Mbutuma from Amadiba Crisis Committee, Sineku Kuzukulu from Sustaining the Wild Coast, Vilmin Wilkom from Legal Resources Center, Kristen Adams from Fishers United and the Southern South African Small Scale Fishers Collective, and Muniba Isaacs from the Institute for Poverty, Land and Agrarian Studies at the University of Western Cape. Nonle Mbutuma, one of our speakers, is the spokesperson of Amadiba Crisis Committee of the Kolobene community situated on the wild coast in the Eastern Cape. And the committee was formed in 2007, and it is fighting for community land rights and the environment, as well as trying to ensure human rights are not violated in the name of development. Sinego Bulukulu is a dynamic, inspiring, and deeply motivated educator social and environmental activist. He was born on the Bondoland White Coast, a place of deep significance in his life. He is against imposed development while favoring bottom-up locally induced uh, human scale development that will be beneficial to people. Kristen Adams is a fourth generation fisher in Stienberg Coast, St. Helena Bay on the West Coast. He represents the Fishers United and the South African small scale fisheries collective. He has been actively involved in many positive changes regarding the livelihoods and rights of small-scale fishers across the globe and internationally, including within the UN and FAO. 
Filmin is an attorney and co-lead in the land program. She joined the LRC in 2009 as candidate attorney. Since then, her practice has specialized on issues of African customary law and community governance systems, in particular as it relates to community rights to natural resources such as land, fishing, and other extractives. She is active in both litigation and policy and law reform to further the democratization of rural communities, ensuring the equality of customary communities and enforcing their rights to determine their own development paths. She has published on law and complex systems, customary law, the right to development and free prior and informed, informed consent in the African continent and the rights of women living under customary systems. Muniba Isaacs is a full professor with the University of Western Cape Institute for Poverty, Land and Agrarian Studies. She submitted in a supporting affidavit uh, in a matter between Christian Adams and Minister of Mineral Resources and Energy. Her work on small-scale fishing communities in South Africa spans over 25 years. She also works extensively on the continent in small-scale fisheries and has started the movement to call for blue justice for small-scale fisheries around the world. The structure of our webinar is as follows. Our panel of experts will address three questions. The first question is, what impact do seismic surveys have on coastal communities, livelihoods, and marine life? What does the South African constitution say about protecting coastal livelihoods and the environment? How sustainable are the courts in defending coastal communities, livelihoods, and marine life? We are going to have an interactive discussion with the speakers for 30 minutes, which will be followed by a 30 minutes general discussion. So, Noemfe, um, based on your experiences working with coastal communities in the Eastern Cape on the Wild Coast, what impacts do seismic surveys have on coastal communities, uh, livelihoods, and marine life? Over to you, Noemfe. Thank you so much, Nobi. Yes, the impact that can happen if the seismic survey was taking place, it was going to be too much for the people that were living on the coast. Remember that a wild coast is known of the fishing area. All the fishermen are coming from different areas for doing fishing in our coastal. And now uh, we have a lot of livelihood, which is the people that are dependent from the ocean for survival. Now, if you blast as the seismic survey, they were going to do their own survey. They were planning to blast our ocean. That means many species from the ocean will be dying, including the fish. Now, the issue that we have is that we put more the national economy uh, over our livelihood, over our local economy. As Shell also says that they are creating jobs, but what kind of jobs that when they're going to bring and it needs to destroy our own uh, livelihood because for our issue when it comes to ocean, ocean is not only a hub to fish, I mean, they have to eat. Also, it's part of spiritual place. It's a heritage. It's one of sacred place uh, where our ancestors are residing there. Now you destroy uh, the whole chain, the whole system of life. It's not only the fish that you destroy. 
when you do this seismic survey. And also the sound that was going to take place is going to scare everything also to the people that are living next to the coast. Those are the reasons that we say that, no, even survey alone, it's going to leave a negative impact, the negative impact that it will not, will not going to be reversed. Thank you so much, Sinekuku. You also work uh, on the wild coast. And uh, based on your experiences, uh, what are the impacts of seismic service on coastal communities as well as on marine life? Uh, thank you very much, Mbovu. The seismic exploration research is showing us that in the places where it has taken place, during that seismic exploration, uh, the catch or the fish that is available to the fishing communities declines sharply. So which means, therefore, people will not be able to earn their livelihood. Remember, for instance, in, within the wild coast where, where I am, people, they, they, they fish, they, they collect crayfish, they collect limpets, mussels, oysters, all of those things, and many other things like your, your squid. So therefore, if this sentence is, is allowed to go ahead, that's going to be a, a problem where the people who are dependent on the ocean are going to see a decline on the catch that is available to them. But of major importance is the fact that the, the, it's not only about the subsistence fishery where people go catch fish to eat. It's also about an economic activity. Coastal communities have just been working with the Department of Environmental Affairs in the fishery section. They have encouraged the people to establish cooperatives. They then were given permits, which give them the rights to be able to catch fish for commercial purposes. Some of those, if not most of those, they even promised boats which they would use when doing that. But boats government has not yet delivered on those promises. Now, when you bring in the exploration for oil and gas, that brings in a contradiction uh, from what has recently been planned by environmental affairs. And now you've got another government department that brings in now putting forward an interest to explore for oil and gas. Therefore, we're saying those interests, they are contradictory uh, because the one, if exploration goes ahead, then it's going to interfere uh, with, the, with the fishing which people have been given. Of course, we know that government is saying, no, they, they have technology that they would do this, but research um, marine biologists have written affidavits to support our application to High Court to stop this. So we know that it is going to have an impact and it was already proven in other areas where this has been done. It has been uh, destructive. And the reason why it is destructive is because seismic exploration, the blasting with those air guns destroys the very basis of the food chain within the ocean, your, your phytoplanktons, uh, which is the base of the food chain to which the very small fish are dependent on. And when you disturb 
the base of the food chain within the oceanic um, ecosystem, then therefore that's going to affect the entire system. So therefore, that is putting, therefore, the people, and we know they use the argument that they will create jobs, not going to create jobs for all the coastal communities, even if they were going to. But what they are planning to do is not sustainable. The ocean has supported coastal communities for thousands of years. Even in our area, we have shell middens that show people who lived here during the last ice age. And there are lots of shells showing that they were dependent on the shellfish, which means the ocean is able to support coastal communities for many, many years. But if they explore for oil and then the oil is found, the greatest challenge is then what happens then to the livelihood. Even if jobs are created, no one, no company, no government would ever be able to create enough jobs to support all the coastal communities, all the people who are dependent on the ocean. That is why we say in whatever way you look at it, seismic exploration for oil and gas in our oceans is not an ecologically sustainable economic activity. Therefore, it should be stopped because it is not in the interest of the coastal communities, but it's in the interest of the shareholders of Shell. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Sinekuku. Uh, Muniba, um, you have worked with coastal communities here in the Western Cape uh, for more than two decades now. Um, in your view, um, what are the impacts of uh, seismic service on coastal communities' livelihoods and marine life? Welcome, Christian. We are glad that you are able to connect now after some difficulty. So, Christian, I'm inviting you now uh, to comment uh, on the following question. Based on your experience working with coastal communities on the West Coast, what impacts do seismic service have on coastal communities' livelihoods and marine life? Thank you. Over to you, Christian. Hi, good afternoon, uh, Dr. Ngobe, and good afternoon all the others, panelists, and all to all the other participants in the conference. Yes, my name is Christian Adams, and I am a small-scale fisher. And yes, the impact on uh, coastal communities is quite significant in the fact that um, a lot of uh, these surveys were done in other places in the world, and there's been effects on the marine and also on the... Uh, production and uh, migratory routes of uh, some of the species that we are catching, like tuna and all of those things. And for us as small-scale fishers, snook and tuna form an integral part of our livelihood, and snook is actually our mainstay of income throughout the year. And for us, snook is of such a manner that it now it forms a great part of our culture, our heritage as well, and our tradition in teaching and passing on the skill of fishing. So these seismic surveys stand the chance to irreparably harm that tradition and culture heritage that we have, and also the species in itself, as well as the environment in which we and the species operate in. 
So for us, it is important that we needed to be consulted before any of these seismic surveys have been conducted in our waters here. Thank you. Thank you so much, Christian. Moniba Isaacs, um, you have worked for more than two decades um, on the West Coast and elsewhere. Um, we invite you now to provide your comments, particularly on, on, the, on the impacts of seismic service on coastal communities and marine life. Over to you, Moniba. Uh, thank you, Ngobi. And um, also, it's an honor for me to kind of speak after um, we've had such good inputs from people who are working, whose boots are on the ground and really uh, working with these issues. Um, for me, it is very important that when we look at the judgment, and I'm going to reflect on the judgment, we look at the whole positionality of small-scale fishers. And if you look at small-scale fishers um, through the lenses of, of an uh, oil and gas exploration company like Searcher and Shell, they, they are overlooked, they are undervalued, they are invisible to uh, this um, um, company, companies coming in and looking at that. Even more, the arrogance of the, uh, the company that was supposed to look at consultation with small-scale community didn't see it necessary to consult with this important group of people who make their livelihoods from uh, the ocean, who respect the ocean culturally and spiritually, who, um, who, who, who source um, food as a form of, of food security and nutrition for themselves, and also as a form of income. All of this had been overlooked, but I'm not surprised. This is not only in, in the case of, of a um, consultancy firm who are lack uh, consultation, or um, an outsider coming in and, 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 and looking at surveys, it is also indicative of how um, the blue growth, the ocean economy, the commercial fisheries policy are all framed in such a way that it, um, it only look at the commercial sector it benefits the commercial sector. It benefits um, um, aquaculture. It, it looks at adventure tourism. It overlooks small-scale fisheries. Even when we think of conservation and we think of marine protected areas, fences are put up uh, to exclude people in terms of access. So in this year of the artisanal fisher year, according to the UN, I think it is important to make it more visible. And, and it is interesting in South Africa, going back uh, generations, going back from the First Nation people, we can trace that um, fishing has been an important part of coastal lives and uh, livelihoods. Added to that, to link to what Christian is saying, I would say that it is definitely a case looking at the, at the judgment, it is definitely a case where, where we have a David and Goliath. And, and it, is, it is a story of the underdog, uh, the invisible small-scale fishers taking on big companies and, and, and really looking at how these surveys are impacting 
honest species like snook. And I would say that uh, I think that such a and um, has been slapped or club met a pup snook, which means that the significance of that species uh, that had been overlooked and people to connect that uh, species to their to their livelihood, to their food security, to the cultural practices, to the spirituality of our fishing community, and the significance that Christian, as a fisher on the west coast, is saying that this is the mainstay of their livelihood, and not considering that snook migrates from the southern part, the southern part of Angola, and come in and out during a season. And it's not necessarily sedentary species. It is a migratory species, and it is important that we that we connect that um, the, the the kind of perspective of of this judgment, making that significant of that that the snook and the importance of these species that small scale fishes make a livelihood from um, is has been um, been overlooked and. And the importance, I think that that often we we not recognizing, is that ocean conservation, and ocean sustainability, and healthy ecosystems, is an important part of that cultural, spiritual livelihoods of small scale fishes. Thank you. I'll stop there. Thank you very much, Muniba. Uh, I would like now to invite you, um, Vilmin, um, to tell us more about what does the South African Constitution say about protecting coastal livelihoods and the environment. Thank you. Over to you, Vilmin. Thank you very much, Chair, um, and thank you for the opportunity. So, um, I mean, of course, the Constitution doesn't speak directly to coastal communities, mm -hmm. but there are quite a number of, of rights that are triggered by these these kinds of disputes um, um, that we've now seen on the west coast and and uh, and on the on the so-called wild coast, uh, and as with with everything really um, in 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 our law, it, there, there's a balancing exercise needed between different rights. So I'm going to say something about the the rights that were triggered here. Um, I think that you've heard now um, time and again people mention consultation and that the fishers were invisible, they were not consulted. So the, the right in the constitution that we have um, is a right to fair administrative action. Now that, that, that sounds like the most boring right um, imaginable, but it is an incredibly important one. Um, it, is, it is kind of the cornerstone of the constitution that takes us away from, from the authoritarian and abusive regime pre that we had before the constitution. So this right talks about people in power making decisions. And it says that um, we, the, the powerless, the ones who are affected by those decisions, we have a right for those decisions to be fair, to be justified, um, and, uh, you know, for the decision maker, in this case, Minister Mantash, when granting a permit, for that decision maker to take into account relevant information, good information, the the information um, that 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 should inform these kinds of decisions, and so that 
that is the right that um, on both sides of our of our country, coastal communities asserted to say, you did not do that, Minister Mantasha, because you, you granted a right without taking us into account at all. We as the most directly affected people. So that's the first one and an and, and important one. But then there are a number of other more substantive rights that were triggered here. And um, I, I think we should go back really to, to the court case way back, um, uh, Kenneth George uh, in, the, in, in the late 2000s, which actually saw the recognition of the small-scale fishing communities for the first time. And in that that case was an equality court case, right? So, so these fishing communities went to the equality court and said the way that fishing rights are allocated in South Africa is discriminatory. It discriminates against us as small-scale fishing communities, against our culture, against our freedom to trade, our freedom to choose to be fishers, um, and uh, uh, our, our, our livelihoods, our right to food. And so... Um, very interestingly, in this judgment, uh, Judge Tulare yesterday picked up on this right to equality and combined it with the right to administer administrative action and said the, the, the law applies equally to everyone. So if the law protects the commercial industry from arbitrary decisions and therefore makes such a um, consult them in detail and respond to those consultations, then that equally applies to small scale fishers. Um, and so, so the actions of searcher was actually discriminatory. Then, of course, I've mentioned the right to food. I've mentioned the right to culture, which I think has become very important in these cases. Um, the last one before I get to environment is, is the, the customary rights of these communities. So we know that through our, our constitution specifically independently recognizes customary rights um, of communities in South Africa. And it was a fishing case that 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 um, asserted that um, through the Gungosi judgment in, in the SCA. And so these communities are also saying we have customary rights to fish. If you do things that limit those rights, then you immediately trigger um, the limitation of a constitutional right. And that's not something that you can do lightly. And then finally, of course, we have the right to environment in section in section 24. And I think what's very important um, in this kind of case is that um, the right to environment and sustainable development in our courts um, is, is understood as a people-centered notion, um, development and the right to environment both. Um, and therefore, the argument really was um, it's about protecting the environment here, but also about protecting it in a way that is that that recognizes the most vulnerable people um, who 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 benefit from the from a good environment and are also the custodians um, of that environment. So, yeah, I'll stop there. Those are, I think, the key constitutional provisions. Thank you so much, uh, Vilmin. Um, I would like to invite all panelists now to respond to our last question, which is how sustainable are court interdicts in defending coastal communities' livelihoods and marine lives? Perhaps we may start with you, Vilmin on that question? Sure, so um, it's, it's a very good question and, 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 um, uh, and a pertinent one for us to ask ourselves right now. So these two very successful cases, these interdicts, so I, I should say, and I'm not gonna go into the, the, the technical legal aspects of it, but an interdict is only a temporary measure 
pending the bigger case in, in, in both Shell and Searcher, the bigger case is about reviewing the permits that was granted. Um, so how sustainable is it? Well, well, not these are only court actions that that um, protect communities from the ons onslaught. These are not um, directly um, asserting positive rights of these communities. Of course, I think we um, have gotten judgments um, uh, in both cases that really try to assert substantive rights, even though it's simply protecting the communities. But we, I would say the next frontier really um, is to move beyond procedural rights. So the right to consultation and the right to, to defend ourselves from the interference with our rights. And where we need to move, I think, um, in, in our litigation is to start getting substantive rights around uh, climate change and the impact there, thereof, substantive rights um, around the, the right of small-scale fishing communities to practice um, the rights that have nominally been recognized by, by the department um, and the minister, uh, but in, in, in substance is still greatly lacking. So I think these were incredibly important cases to put them, uh, to put small-scale fisheries on the forefront. But the next frontier is to get proper substantive implementation um, and realization of their rights. Thank you very much, Velmin. Uh, um, if you could also respond to the same question about the sustainability of the court interdict. From where you stand, uh, what does the future look like? Um, yeah, you know, uh, where I stand right now, the future, it looks darker, what I can say, because you can see the plans of the government are more uh, fossil fuel, which is uh, the big issue that we are facing with the global warming right now. Uh, it's, it shows clear that our government is not there uh, to mitigate the climate change. And our government is not there uh, to promote the local economy. Now, the issue that we are facing is that our own government is more supporting the private sector, uh, which is uh, to destroy the livelihood because private sector is not going to create jobs. As long as our government is pushing the, the, the private sector, I don't see how they're going to create jobs. And also they are not looking at the sustainability way of doing development. Those are my fear. And also the, the human rights issue because this development are always override the human rights because it's always putting the profit first before the people, which is uh, my other worry. Although right now communities are always taking government in and out to court, which is another worry that our democracy, that we are thinking is democracy, is democracy for few, not for all because it shows that the state is more on the weak side where they, they just turn a blind spot to the laws that is being implemented in order to protect the citizens. That is why I said, um, on my side, I see a more darker ahead of us. It, I see a more challenge as communities that we are facing to challenge uh, this so-called democracy. Thank you.
Thank you very much, uh, Noonfe. Um, we are slightly over time, and um, I think um, it's time that we look at the questions um, and have our panelists respond to the questions that have been raised. Um, the first one is from Mbulelo. Um, Mbulelo says, as usual with this government, the left hand does not know what the right hand is doing. And then the question is, what are the prospects for fully implementing the one environmental management system? Um, I invite our panelists uh, to respond uh, to, to that question. And perhaps uh, we may start with Nekuku. Thank you, Nekuku. Okay. All right. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Nobi. Um, Nobi, in, in terms of um, what the one and, and environmental management system, yes, that, that is in place now, but the challenge we have in South Africa is, is bigger than one environmental system. If one was to look at how the, the ruling party deploys um, ministers, we have seen since 1994 that there is a growing trend where um, the government is always deploying a weaker in terms of political influence, a weaker candidate on the environment department and a much stronger, like for instance, if you're looking now, you have got Gwede Mandashe, who is the Minister for Mineral Resources and Energy. And then you have Barbara Chrissy, and Gwede Mandashe is the chairperson of the ruling party. So, so the tendency is of making sure that the environment, we know that if we're looking in the previous years, the environment department has even been given to Martinez van Skalpik. So there is a tendency um, to give um, that environment department somebody who is less uh, influential in terms of the political decisions. And therefore, we know that the cabinet sits in what is called in this country, cabinet lehuta. And decisions are made there, and votes have to be made when decisions are made. Unfortunately, we, we, we can see that. I've never been to that meeting, but I can already see that. So decisions are being made there that would undermine the environment, no matter there is a minister, there are laws and all of that. And it is therefore important and significant that we as South Africans, as the public, as individuals, that we are able to use the constitution, to use the legislations we have, the statutes that we have at our disposal, to go to court, to use the constitution. Um, the, the, the legal firms like Legal Resource Center, they are never going to be able to help us unless we stand up and we are able to give them an opportunity to use these, uh, these laws in court in order to create precedents that could be used to protect um, our, 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 our livelihoods, our, our environment. So the most important thing is for us to be able as individuals, as citizens, as public organizations, to go up to court to be, so that we give opportunities 
for these laws to be tested and to be used to argue our position so that we create a precedent that could be used in future to protect our livelihoods and our environment. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Sinekugu. Um, I invite other panelists uh, to comment briefly uh, on the question. If not, then I go to um, the following uh, comment, essentially, from N not. Um, N is saying, so uh, are we talking about extinction of species, extinction of small-scale fishers and livelihoods, and constitutional rights to food, extinction of indigenous customary cultural and spiritual practices, extinction of participative democracy and people-centered social and climate justice, including fair administrative practices and equity. Thank you so much, Anne, uh, for that uh, comment. And we have a few uh, comments, but let me hand over to our panelists to respond to your um, comment. Okay, um, maybe from you, Christian, um, about the, the extinction of uh, rights, you know, customary rights, uh, the erosion of it, uh, which is essentially the erosion of uh, democratic principles uh, in response uh, to the above comment, what would you uh, say? Yes, yes, thank you, Lobe. Um, yes, for us, it's uh, uh, basically a question of, um, this is a fight that has been started not a couple of years ago, but four centuries ago. And 400 years ago, my, father, my forefathers started fighting against uh, Jan van Eri became the colonialist. And then from there, this fight carried on into different uh, sets of times through apartheid. And now we as this generation are still fighting the same fight to get that recognition that small-scale fishers need within um, the history of uh, South Africa and also within the future of South Africa. Because all over the world we have, um, since 1981, we have had studies showing that there, it's only in small-scale fisheries that there is an increase in employment so if we are going to look of all, against all of these arguments that the minister are making a loss of jobs and loss of this and loss of that, if they give us a small-scale fishers the proper support in order to uh, create those opportunities for employment, which we will be able to do, because subsequently, even through the coronavirus uh, pandemic, what we've seen in the lockdowns, where did people flee to when they couldn't go to the normal jobs that they were uh, working under? without the lockdowns. They came to the oceans and us as fishers still uh, continue to support and allow them to be able to provide and put food on their tables. So for us, it's not a matter of if we are looking at an extinction, for us it's a matter of uh, continuing with this fight for the recognition of the small-scale fishers. And subsequently with that, we will be continuing to look after the oceans and to also look after the environment and the species that the environment hosts. Because we've been doing this, like I said, for 400 years. And it's only through the last century from the early 1950s that this huge industrial exploitation started. So we were the custodians of the oceans until that time that the apartheid regime decided to
to rape the ocean to the extent in which it's, it's still being pilferage at, at this very moment through those very same companies that are responsible for the decimation of our resource in the manner than which they are doing it. But so we are the ones that are looking after the protection. We are the first ones to respond to a, a, a marine uh, disaster. As we've seen just recently in Ellens Bay, who were the first people that were there on the scene? It was the small scale fishers that was there. Not the scientists, not the big companies. Who are the people that are most concerned about these issues? It's the small scale fishers. So when people are thinking that we are looking after this ocean in the manner to just be a poultry or whatever they want to call it, it is these very industrial companies that are doing the things that, uh, that people or the system are blaming us for. In terms of the administration and those types of things, just one small comment to say that currently our small-scale fisheries department consists of less than 10 people to look after four provinces. And if we look at the amount of people that serve as the industrial sector mm -hmm. within the department, you can see the huge discrepancy and the huge bias towards whereby the department wants to give their support to. And I think I must stop there for now because I can, there are much more that we can add to that. But thank you very much. For thank you very much, Christian, for your contribution. Uh, Vilmin, um, your hand is up. Maybe you want to respond to this comment. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I maybe want to respond to uh, say a number of um, comments and people are asking about how to um, further assert these substantive rights. And I... I want to say something that 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 has kind of been on my mind throughout this process um, of these two court cases, and um, it's just so so I've worked with small scale fishing communities for for the last um, eleven or twelve years, and they've done a number of um, court cases where they were able to assert um, substantive rights and extraordinary victories. Um, but no one cared <laughs> they got no attention um they you know and, and it's not that that they didn't try um so on the one hand it's wonderful that they have now um become the champions of a of a of a bigger and maybe a different fight um for them of course it's about the impact on them but it's clear that you know they've got an amazing support um throughout the country because you know, it 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 links to to people's greater concern about the environment. Um, but but um, you know, I, I am concerned that that when the environment conversation moves on, then the support to them will also move on. Um, and I think that's really you know, we we talk about the company that that rendered them invisible, which is absolutely true, but. Many, many society has, in a sense, also rendered them invisible for a very long time. I, d I don't think it's only the company or only the government. I think we've, we've, you know, we for a very long time completely ignored these communities, um, and it is something that we that that requires some introspection from all of us. I think um, so. You know, so a celebration with all with also kind of uh, a, a pause as to why that is. And I, and I, you know, the support that these communities need is uh, uh, mobilization around their rights um, that need, um, that need uh, their recognition. Um, and so I would really like to see this renewed, these bonds that have now been 
um, made in this 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 support network that that it continues and that it that it focuses on what these com- communities need. Um, whether that has got to do with a bigger environmental discourse um, or not. Um, So that I think, you know, litigation, there's a question about how do we get the substantive rights? We've done that for the fishers, but because there's no, they they struggle so much to get public support, to get, you know, recognition uh, uh, amongst everyday people, um, they struggle to, to have those rights implemented. So that, is key um and i i think it's something we should reflect on thank you so much uh Vilmin. um we have another question here from luiso dunga um he's directing he or she is directing the question to mr adams and uh, um one is have you given any thoughts to what we could do to ensure that we protect the local communities and the ocean environment. And the second question from Luiso is directed to Vilmin. Is there any constitutional provision that ensures that these big companies pay reparations to communities they put in harm's way? And then um, Luiso is thankful. Um, Perhaps we may start with you, um, Christian. Uh, in terms of what um, the wider public uh, could do uh, in support. Yes, thank you very much, Mnore. Um Yes, for, for us as small-scale fishers, I think um, Volmin uh, did touch on that, and that it, it, it is only through our, when we have our public actions also, and that also that when we write articles to, this is, these are practical examples of what I'm saying as to what can happen in terms of support. To say that when we are writing articles to newspapers, comment on those articles. When we are speaking on social media about these things, look at, for instance, this year is the International Year for Artisanal Fisheries. It's the first time that the United Nations have uh, uh, declared any year the International Year for Artisanal Fisheries. Now, this is the very, uh, this is the best year for the wider public to come out in support of small-scale fishers because it's, such a, it's, it's been recognized on an international level. But for us, um, also on to the question of uh, uh, Loiso, is that we've, we've been protecting the environment for centuries. And through that protection of the environment, we've been looking after our communities for centuries as well. And through that, we've been able to keep the tradition, the culture, and the uh, customary right of fishing, we've been able to keep it alive through all the struggles that we've had. Like I said earlier, colonialism, apartheid, no recognition of rights. We've been fighting to keep this manner of fishing alive. And we are still doing it in the manner in which the Koi and the Sun people did it 400 years ago, by looking after the environment, by looking at how we are fishing, through when we are fishing. We've been the ones that started to implementing seasons. We are the ones that started to implementing uh, size limits. Don't catch that fish. Don't catch this fish. Don't catch a lobster when it's when it's in berry. This is a very one of the very earliest uh, lessons that I've learned from my grandfather in terms of protecting the ocean and protecting the species within. When he told me at the age of seven years, hey Christian, 
wet lobster, you can't eat it and you can't take it home because you need to put it back in the water because it's got a soft shell and it's burying eggs. And that's when I started to know that, hey, we need to look after the environment. Now I'm a fourth generation fisher. And that skill of fishing has been passed down from generation to generation uh, until it's now. Through all the oil and gas speaking, I hear that we are going to be skilled. We are going to be upskilled and all of this. I am very skilled. I am very knowledgeable in the act or in the occupation of fishing. Don't try to come and change me to make me something else. And that is what we've been trying to tell the ministers. We've been trying to tell the people out there is that when you look at the West Coast, the history of fishing is part of this West Coast, the very existence of the West Coast. And then now we have many instances through the actions of our government that these, this history will be, will, be, will be ruined or will be lost for everybody. So we want to have tourists coming to the West Coast, look at nice fishing villages, but we don't want the tourists to meet or see the, fish, the fishers or the fishing communities. Only the villages, yeah, it's like a dead remnant that is standing there. Yeah, they used to be a thriving fisheries here. Is this what they want to tell us? No. We started this fight 400 years ago, and we will continue this fight for another 400, if it need be. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Christian. Um, Muniba, i like to invite you to comment on uh, what has been said, um, what has been uh, posed as questions. Over to you, Muniba. Uh, thank you, Nobi. Uh, I think that, um, you know, my worry, like Vilmin, had been you have successes in the court and you have um, wins, um, important wins with interim interdicts. And you are able to sway uh, the minister to say not to cut Whiskers Rock Lobster on an annual basis. But in reality, what are the bread and butter issues for these communities to thrive? Uh, number one, I go back to snook. Snook is a very significant species for small-scale fishes. Uh, Industrial trawlers are targeting snook and declare it as bycatch. When is the government going to stop doing, allowing big industrial fishing companies to target schools of snook that are important, a livelihood, food security uh, for small-scale fishes? Another factor is that on, um, in a study that we've done last year on the African food systems, we focused on Lumbertsby. We have found that through COVID, that the social reproductive role of women in, uh, in fishing is, 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 is becoming less and less, and they've become invisible. Um, the fish is not able to stay in the community. It is taken out of the community because there are no infrastructural support for communities to store fish for a longer period of time. So stop industrial fisheries from targeting snook. Provide cold storage for fishes on harbors. And that would increase work for fishing communities. With the snook, you make lungsos 
And that means that the family can eat that fish for a whole week because you can make a different variety of that fish. It is an important uh, form of, 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 of nutrition for, for, for communities. But coming back, let's put that all aside. It is so important that um, we're not using small-scale fishing communities to go against all oil and gas, and we use it in terms of their livelihoods and the practices of their livelihoods, because that is inherent a problem for conservation organizations. And we need to really unpack how we view conservation and how conservation is really practiced. Because I tell you, I've been in so many in, uh, uh, meetings where small-scale fishers are known as the poachers. They are the one who are extracting more than what they, what, the, what they should. And I think it is important that we bring in the social justice rights and access of, of small-scale fishers have been recognized. But we, we need to really unravel how we practice conservation, how conservation is perceived, and who is, um, and that conservation is, is seen that it is a loving uh, um, a thing between communities and the ocean and not disconnected, not forced that your access is, is, is not allowed and that we need to bring social justice movements in South Africa to start recognizing that these rights is also important. We need to bring the justice and link blue justice to the issue of small-scale fisheries because we are fighting a bigger battle of oil, gas, uh, um, aquaculture, sustainability, uh, exclusion of small-scale fishes. So I agree that um, with, with non-clay, we are in for a bigger battle and our space are getting smaller and we are becoming more invisible as, as people. So we must be stopped using small-scale fishes for your own agenda. Start looking at um, investing and supporting small-scale fishes to practice their livelihood, to, to support their value chains, to, 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 to rehabilitate these communities, and not just go as a tourist to kind of view small-scale fishes, but actually buy from them. And I think it is important that we, we, we reshape how we think about small-scale fishes. Thank you so much, Muniba. Um, I would like to invite um, Nontre and Sinegugu to make closing remarks. Thank you. Um, yeah. You know, what I can say in, in my closing is that uh, now let's put the environment, when we said environment, including the human being, because the issue that we have, uh, the human being is excluded when we talk about environment. And also let's put the sustainable development and also let's include the communities, let's include people uh, in the development because we are on this challenge because there is a huge exclusion of our communities now we are no longer part of decision-making. Uh, somebody from above decide on behalf of us. Now let's bring the same democracy that we, we were hoping for. Thank you. 
Thank you so much, Monte. Christian Adams, your closing remarks, please. Yes, uh, I would just like to um, continue on the on the discussion that we're currently having, and that um, I totally agree with Nonsle is that um, when we're speaking about the environment, we need to include human beings as well. Because if we look at it, if we are speaking about an ecosystem approach of which our government is speaking about, we are looking at, the, at this approach from a from a sort of view that yes, actually we are part and included in this ecosystem that we are uh, harvesting from, but we are we are not being respected in the same manner in which the rest of the ecosystem is being respected. Yet I'm going to reiterate what I said earlier. We are the ones that have been the custodians of these oceans for since time immemorial. When they started coming to our shores, they found us here looking after these resources. And to the general public out there and to people out there, to say that. When you see us in the media, when you when you see us asking for support from different areas or from different platforms or even from different areas within the country as well, when we are protesting on our beaches, do come and join us, do come and show us that support and do come and show us that you are actually recognizing that there is a sector and still operating and thriving is the small-scale fishery sector in South Africa. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Christian. Wilmin, your closing remarks, please. Thank you. Maybe my closing remark will be a, a question that you actually asked me in preparation for, for this webinar, uh, Chair, which was about would, would this case have been possible 50 years ago um, or before the Constitution? And, you know, we often talk about the limits of the um, limitations of the Constitution, which and there are many. We can just look at our society to see that. But no, it, this kind of case would not have been possible um, um, 50 years ago because, you know, we did not have a Bill of Rights and our courts were not required to um, weigh up the commercial interests um, of, of, of a company that are considerable, considerable um, financial interests to weigh that up against constitutional rights and, and would never have found that the constitutional rights of, of anyone, of the most vulnerable Trump uh, whatever commercial rights there are. And I think this is really, really significant um, and, and something we should not underestimate um, and just uh, build on, really. Um, and to say, finally, um, court cases are great, uh, but they don't change the world. The world is changed by people um, and our minds as a society changing. Um, and that's that's maybe this is a contribution to that, but that's what we need. We need changed minds. Thanks. Thank you so much, Wilmin. Uh, and thank you so much to all our panelists and all our guests uh, on uh, YouTube, all the students from different universities, from um, environmentalists as well who have joined, from people in the NGOs, in the private sector, and in government. And um, let us please keep talking about these issues. Um, as Wilmin has said, you know, if it was 50 years ago, perhaps we wouldn't be having these types of platforms. So we should embrace these kinds of negotiations. So on behalf of the University of Western Cape Institute for Poverty Land and Agrarian Studies, um, I would like to bring this 
webinar to a close and I wish you all well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Just Us and the Climate, a production by the Climate Justice Coalition. To find out more about the Coalition and their work to promote climate justice, visit climatejusticecoalition.org. This podcast is made possible thanks to the financial support of the Friedrich Ebert Stiftung. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.